Welcome to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Going to tell you five half stories, all right? And here's your question. You've got to think about while I'm telling them. What's the same about all the five half stories? And which one do you think might be the odd one out? You ready? Toru fa. Half story one, Opal and the protein. When I was a teenager, my friend Opal, who was a home science teacher, said, Jeremy, I think I know why you find it really hard to get going in the mornings. If you have a bit of protein with your breakfast, it'll perk you up. Story two. Amy Grace Henderson said to me one day, Jeremy, did you know that if you cross your legs above the knee, it puts a great strain on your back? And if you, if you cross them below the knee, it doesn't. Half story three. Hannah, my daughter, said, Dad, one night, as I'm busy going out to yet another youth thing years ago, Dad, you're always looking after everyone else's kids. What about your own? Half story four. Aaron Wilson and Jeremy Welsh are walking across the playground at Huntley Primary School, and Aaron says, Mr. Welsh, that step looks dangerous. Someone should fix it. Half story five. My friend Sally said to me, the doctor said I had diabetes and I had to stop drinking. Now, what's the same about all those five half stories? They're helpful advice, aren't they, all right? Helpful advice. Now, is anybody going to take a guess at which, one, which story is the odd one out? I didn't really give you enough information, did I? So here comes the ends of the stories, all right? Story one. Thanks, Opal. I'll try that. So I'll have a cheese sandwich every morning for breakfast. It really did help. Uh, Amy, thank you, Amy. I've had chronic back pain for years, and I'm happy for any advice that helps that so I don't cross my legs above the knee anymore. Haven't for years. Thank you, Amy. Hannah, what about your own kids? <sighs> Doesn't every father love to hear that? I went, Before I had kids at all, I prayed to God, and I'm serious. This isn't a joke. I used to pray to God that my kids would be good enough to tell me off when I needed it. I did. She was right, and I had to try harder, and I did. It got easier when my kids became youth group age. Then we could kind of kill two birds with one stone. Aaron Wilson, the step, what do you think we did? We fixed the step. And the, at which, so none of them have been odd one out so far, have they? The odd one out is the last one. Sally told me that in answer to my question, Sally, how did you go blind? And that was her answer. The doctor told me I had diabetes and I had to stop drinking. You see, good advice only helps you when you, when you take it, when you follow it. Now, I, you, we all know this scripture. We've read it a hundred times. Jesus says, now you then know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. That's John thirteen seventeen. So I've read these, this scripture umpteen times. Uh, now ye then know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But one day I was reading the Living Bible and it said this. It said, you know these things, now do them, for this is the path of blessing. I thought, my goodness, that's got a lot of impact, hasn't it? So I went up through the little forest I used to walk through to the school and I said to the kids, right, we've got something new to look at today. And I wrote it across the top of the blackboard. You know these things, now do them. And it became the mantra of Waikakawai School because gradually it dawned on everyone at the school, me included, there's no good knowing the things if you don't do them. So I'd be going around and I'd say, hey, that's a good story but you forgot to put any full stops in it. I'd say, you know these things. And the class would chorus, now do them. 
It became our school motto. And it's a good motto. Jesus told a story of two houses. Do you remember the story? From, it's from Matthew 7, chapter, from verse 24 on. And he said in the story that some people build a life that's like a house on a rock. And some people build a life that's like a house on the sand. They might both look all right for a while, but when the storms and hard times come, some people's life seems to hold up and some people's life falls to bits. What is the difference? What did Jesus say made the difference? Build it on him. He didn't exactly say, build your life on me. Come on, try harder. He said, if you build your house on the rock, it's like a person who heard my words and did them. And if you build your house on the sand, it's like the person who heard my words and didn't do them, all right? He didn't talk about people who didn't hear his words. Didn't matter because they were all listening to them right then. And we've all heard them, haven't we? All right? So that's the difference. Now, we used to, in, in Sunday school, they didn't explain it to us. Build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it doesn't say that. It says, you hear my words and do them, your life will stand. You hear my words and don't do them, your life will fall to bits. Bill Gothard used to talk about two families. Teenage boy, it was a made-up story, I think. But a teenage boy comes to his dad. Dad, we're Christians, right? Yeah. And the family across the road, they're not Christians. No, no, they're not. Well, then how come? that we're always arguing and squabbling and not getting on. We're always broke and the place is a shambles. And over there, everything seems to be ordered and they all get along with each other and they're nice to each other and the bills are paid. How come? Now, Bill Gothard's answer to that is, he says this. He says, sure, we're Christians, all right, but we don't heed what the Bible says about how to run our life. Whereas across the road, they're not Christians. They haven't got the promise of eternal life like we have because they don't believe in Jesus. But somehow, accidentally, they found out some truths of Scripture and applied them. And that's why their life was ordered. Now we, my dear friends, can have the best of both worlds. By trusting in the Lord Jesus, we're assured of eternal life. And by building our life on his teachings, we can live a bit of order now, can't we? So good advice only helps when you do it. Now there's dumb advice too, all right? There's bad advice. Uh, I won't talk a lot about that, but Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. So when people give you advice, look at how they're going themselves, all right? We used to have a next-door neighbor called Kathy. She was a prostitute, and she used to come across to our house and give our teenage girls relationship advice. Should I be worried? Of course not, because my girls looked at her life and go, oh, thanks, Kathy, but no thanks. They didn't want to end up like her. They knew lots of people whose lives were standing. They knew Murray and Jenny Henderson. They knew a lot of decent people, and so they decided to listen to them instead of Kathy. Good call. I didn't need to worry at all. Kathy came along here, and when she walked into this place, she was surprised by how accepted and how welcomed she was. She ended up giving her heart to the Lord. Now, Murray came up with this uh, title, Above and Beyond, for our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's a quote. Many spiritual teachers, such as Emmett Fox, viewed Jesus Christ as the greatest teacher of metaphysics that ever lived, that in his teachings he was attempting to explain to the individuals of the day how to improve their lot in life through practical teachings. The Sermon on the Mount records the details of one such seminar. I believe that myself. Careful now, before you tell everybody what Jeremy said, I didn't use the word just or only in my sentence at all, right? Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. Heck, what was their name for him? Teacher. All right? 
Now, when we go to youth group, I often say this, when we're talking to the kids about what we're doing and why we're doing it, I say, why does a 66-year-old man go to youth group? This is why, because I want you to have a good life. Did you hear that? Good, you listened. We want you to have a good life. That's why we do all this stuff. And Jesus does too. And here, you'll often find me end a sermon by saying, let us know how you get on. Have you heard me say that? Because I'm keen to hear, how's it going? Did it work? Did you try it? See, those, that's direct thinking from Jesus. Now, above and beyond, Jesus' standards are higher than ours. So I might think I'm doing pretty well. I never kill people. And Jesus says, yeah, Jeremy, but did you know that when you have angry thoughts, when you insult and abuse your brother, that's liable to judgment too? Oh, I never cheat on my wife. Yes, Jeremy, but did you know that when you think about doing it, when you're just entertaining the thought, oh, yes, I did, Jesus. I read that in verse 27. I give money to the poor. And Jesus says, so? You do it in such a way that draws attention to yourself. I made it plain in the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapter 6, verse 2, that when we give to the poor, we do it quietly. We don't do it showily. Because if we're trying to get rewards from other people, God doesn't reward us. I always tell the truth when I'm under oath. Do you do that? When you, do you, when you go to court, you know, they, you take that oath, you know that thing? How it works? What do you call it if somebody takes the oath and then tells a lie? What does, what's that called? Perjury. I never commit perjury. When I take the oath, I always tell the truth. What does God say about that? Verse 33, he says, don't swear the oath at all. Don't. Don't take an oath. So you see, when we start to be proud and go, oh, we're doing all right, aren't we? Then God says, Jesus' words say, no, you're not doing all right, actually, because these things come in, these thoughts and things, you're guilty of those too. Jesus isn't saying that to slap me down and make me die of grief. There's a reason he's saying it, which I'll tell you about. Now, that last one about taking an oath has a lot of poignance for my family because after I spoke about that in this building last time, Two weeks later, I found out that one of my ancestors, who I hadn't known about, was a Baptist pastor. And, this, and following Jesus' words was so important to him that he refused to take an oath. This is in Britain. And he was put in prison where he died. Now, here's the question then. Did his life stand on the rock or fall down because it was built on the sand? He died in prison. He stood on the rock. You see, because God's economy is not like ours. You could look at him and say, what a loser. Just wouldn't swear a simple oath and he went and died in prison. What a, what a plonker. But Jesus says, no, this is a man who held true to my words at the cost of his very life. You see, in Jesus' standards, he's the one who stood firm. He didn't fall down. We have a stark choice. You hear Jesus' words, you do them, or you don't. Do you? Let us know how you get on. People come and see me or they ring. And they, you know, they, they come up to me in the street or, or perhaps phone up and they say, this is what I did and this, this is what happened. And, and that's encouraging for me because it's, it's not only Australians, some New Zealanders do it too. See, Kate's a champ and Anna is. She, hey, Jeremy, I tried that and this is what happened. Now, one man who's a, a man of God and he sees good things happen in his life, he said, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I said, why not? He said, because it's like showing off. I think not. 
I think that actually that man has all sorts of encouraging stories that could say, look, when I followed Jesus and did what he said, look what happened. This could happen to you, but he won't because he thinks it's showing off. Now, you make your own mind up about that, but if you think he's right, then you'll think I'm a real show-off today because I'm going to tell you what happened in our family, all right? So I still encourage you to let people know when good things happen because you did what Jesus said. Can you see that? I, th- I thought I made it bigger print. Can you read that? You can. Well, let's read it together if you can. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That's chapter... Doesn't it say, I thought, I had, I thought I'd put the reference on it. This is, hang on a minute, Where this is verse 38, chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, right? So we're going to have a bit of a look at these things. When I used to read those as a kid, in fact, when I used to read those five years ago, I look at it and go, oh, well, okay, we kind of take what somebody's going to... Wakers go, all right, okay, you can hit the other one. Um, All right, I'll I'll carry this stuff two miles. It's a fairly quiet, peaceful sort of let's not rock the boat thing to do, right? But I poke the bear. This is not that at all. Let's have a bit of a look at that. First of all, we're going to have a look at... Can we have the next slide, please? Let's have a look at this one first. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where does that come from, that saying? It does. It comes from Exodus 21, verse 24 to 25. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, it actually is written in the Bible. Now, Jesus was not changing the meaning of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but he was restoring it to the original context, says someone. The common misconception seems to be that people were using Exodus 21, 24 to 25, which were the guidelines for a magistrate to punish convicted offenders as justification for personal vengeance. Do you see what was happening? Jesus was talking. He's saying, you can't be the judge and jury and executioner in your own life, all right? Sure, the magistrate can do this, but that's not how you're to run your life. Now, eye for eye sounds cruel, doesn't it? But it was a limit. Without this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth um, rule, vengeance, Utu, just carried on getting worse and worse. I want to tell you two stories from the Bay of Islands. These are stories that touch my heart. The first story is this, and it happened, I think, in 1839. What happened in 1840? The Treaty of Waitangi. This happened just before New Zealand became a British um, protectorate, I suppose you'd call it, colony. All right, in 1839, two girls were up in the the Bay of Islands. They were both quite high-born Maori girls from chiefly backgrounds, and they were both having an affair with the same captain of an American whaleboat. This led to bad feelings. It's not a good idea. And in the course of their discussions, one of them insulted the other, called her some rude name. Now, you don't call the daughter of a chief that rude name. And by the time all of the Utu and all of the banter and all the comings and goings are finished, a hundred people lay dead. Do you see what happened? Two girls had a fight, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. That happens in Semple Street, by the way. Now, just after, it does. It does. Two girls have a fight, and then other people come in, and it just gets bigger and bigger. But no, that doesn't kill 100 people. All right, sorry. 
Now, now this, the next story I'm going to tell you happened just after. It was either 1840 or 1841. A, a young man murdered a whole family that was a widow, her, her children, and, and another man who, who helped her out. It was a, they were farmers. And what happened was the local Māori chiefs rounded up, found out who did it, brought him to the magistrate, and he was tried, uh, given a trial, and he was hanged. Now, you might say, well, that's very tough, Jeremy, but what I'm saying is the difference there was that the eye for an eye rule meant it stopped at that. The young man was hanged. That was the end of the story. There was no need for this bouncing of utu that, and that used to go around in Israel. It used to go around in Scotland, where, where my ancestors come from. It certainly happened in this country too. An eye for an eye was not as cruel as it sounds. There we are. That's important to know, isn't it? So let's have a bit of a look. Turn the other cheek, says Jesus. I need a helper. Aaron, can you come and help me? The first thing Jesus says is, if somebody, uh, do not resist an evil person. If somebody <laughs> slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the right cheek. <laughs> now, what I'm going to tell you, I love this guy, but I'm going to show you what, the, what it was like in those days, all right? There was a ceremonial insult. This was not just like giving someone the bash, right? If I'm just having a fight with Aaron, back in those days, I'd punch him or slap him or something like this. But this, bang, meant you are inferior to me. A boss would do it to a slave. Somebody, a nobleman would do it to a serf. It's a way of saying in that society, you're just a nothing. It had a meaning. Now, what I want you to do now is watch what Aaron does now. First of all, I do this. Back of the right hand across the right cheek. Watch what he does if he's following Jesus. What's he going to do? He turns it right round, turns it right round. What can I do? You see, I can't do the ceremonial insult again. He's confronted me very much right here. What I could do, I could slap him across that cheek that way, but that is the way that a Hebrew man would treat an equal. So by doing that, Aaron has stopped the whole business unless I want to admit that we're equals and I'll punch him or something, we can have a fight. Now, I used to think that there was, thanks, Aaron, I, I used to think this stuff was all so quiet and all the meek and everything else. It's confrontational. What Jesus tells us to do is confrontational. It's tough. It's not weak and quiet. It's poking the bear. It's not just acquiescing to the bully. All right, the next thing is sue for a coat. If somebody sues you, for your coat. Let's just have a bit of a think about that. If somebody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hang over your coat as well. Some of you will say your coat and your cloak or whatever in, in your Bible verse there. But I want you to think about this. What kind of person would take someone to court and sue him for his shirt or for his coat? What kind of person? A mean person, all right? See how it works like this. Okay, Brian, you owe me a hundred bucks. He goes, I've got nothing, Jeremy. He says, well, I'm going to come around and take your TV. He says, I haven't got a TV. Well, I'll take your car then. I haven't got a car. I'll take your shoes. I haven't got any shoes. I say, right, I'm going to take your shit. You see what happens? Only the meanest, meanest person would take someone to court to sue them for their shirt. And by the way, this was against Hebrew law. The books of Moses made it clear that a Jew isn't meant to take the shirt off another guy. He's got to have a shirt, right? So what Jesus says is this. It's very confrontational. A poor man wouldn't have a lot of clothes. This is before undies were invented, all right? So what Jesus says is, somebody's going to take you to court, sue you for your coat, cloak, whatever it is, in your version of the Bible. What do you do? Give him the coat. You give him the shirt. And there you stand. 
Now all the people around go, why is that guy naked? Because that guy just took everything he owned. Why? Because he owed him a hundred bucks. That's mean. Do you see how confrontational that is? Now, people in those days were quite used to seeing people naked working in the fields or fishing boats, but to do it in town, in that context, would take people's attention. And they go, what's happening here? You see, the person who's done that confronts evil and bullying. He puts the onus back on the bully. The third one, which says about walking a mile, most of you know the story behind this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You you know that one, don't you? Now, under, uh, what's the name? I've got the name of it, Angaria, which was a Roman law, a soldier could require somebody in an occupied country to carry his stuff for a mile. It was the law. So the soldier comes down the road. He says, hey, Jew, come here. You had to do it or you'd be arrested. Carry my pack. So the Jew had to carry the soldier's pack along the road. Lots of resentment. Who likes having someone else occupy their land and take over? They didn't like it. So when you get to the end of your mile, there's a milestone. The Roman roads had the stinking Roman, you know, and then the Roman goes, hey, you, next you, come here. See? But imagine this. Imagine how confrontational this is. We get to the end of the mile, and the soldier says, all right, you can go. He said, no, I'm going to carry your pack for the next mile too. And he's called it, hey, come over here. And the other guy comes over and he says, what? He says, no, I'm going to carry it the next mile. You can't do that. Yeah, all I'm going to anyway. Why? Because my King Jesus told me. You can't do that, says the soldier, because he knows that if he makes someone carry his pack two miles, he'll be put on charge. He'll be court-martialed, basically. A soldier is not allowed to do that. So here we are. Here's the other Jewish guy saying, well, do you want me to take your pack or not? Here's the soldier going, I don't know what to do here. Do you see what I'm saying? This is not meek. This is confrontational. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That asks is generally generally, generally translated as beg, is it, in your translation? And so I want to give you a little bit of context on this because when I was a young man, I go, okay, somebody begs from us, we give to them. If somebody wants to borrow something, we lend it to them. I've learned some things in my life I'm going to tell you a bit about it, but please remember this is Jeremy speaking right now, not Jesus, all right? Jesus says to do these things. Jeremy is going to tell you a bit of my experience, and you can make up your own mind and answer to God for yourself. First of all, let's think about begging. When Jesus spoke, people knew who the beggars were and what their story was. They knew who the real cripples were and so on. But as we spent some time in Sri Lanka, Janet and me, we, re- we learned that there was a whole world of begging we didn't quite understand before. Beggar bosses employed people to beg for them. So what would happen is they'd say, Anna, do you want a job? Yes. Then you can beg just outside McDonald's. Now what you can do is I will pay you $5 a day to beg there and then you, t- and you turn the money over to me, I'll give you $5. And you say, but what if people don't want to give me money? I said, well, we'll give you, we'll give you a baby too. It'll cost you a dollar a day to rent the baby. And so Anna sits there with the rented baby because it will, because people feel more sorry for her. The baby's covered with sores, but just across the road is a government medical center where the baby could get help free. So once we learned that sort of thing, we, we, we started to go, well, okay, I see what we're doing. If we give to everyone who begs for us, we're propping up that terrible system. What do we do? Well, somebody said, watch what the locals do. They know. The locals know who's real. But another thing you can do is give food instead of money. 
And one time in Sri Lanka, we were driving, we were walking down the road and these two little boys came along, eh, 10 years old, you know, give us some money. Well, they were smoking cigarettes and they had kind of Walt Disney masks on. We thought that must have cost a bit. So we took them in and bought them some food instead. Another time we were walking along, same, this is in Candy, same place. And suddenly, pow, this food comes flying across the, the footpath. And we go, what's that? Said, oh, there was a guy begging for money and somebody gave him a nice plate of food instead. Now, in New Zealand, we have these guys called scammers. If you take Jesus literally, give to everyone who begs from you, you would have to give everything to the scammers that they ask for. Begging is, has a history in this town, I'm afraid. I remember saying to kids at Huntley College, you've got talent, you've got ability, you're a sharp little girl, why are you begging? She said, everybody begs, sir. She'd never noticed that not everybody in Huntley begs. She'd never noticed. Sir, you got a dollar? Yes, that's how it's going to stay. Let's think a bit about borrowing too. Please remember, this is Jeremy talking, not Jesus. I mean, See where I'm going with that one is, we should be generous people, willing to give when we see need. But in my estimation, we should be cautious too. I said to Janie once, you know, Janet and I were talking about it. If we gave to everybody everything they asked for all the time, we'd have nothing left at all, nothing. And we couldn't help anybody. And Janie says, you're dead right, Jeremy. So thanks, Janie, for the backup. All right, let's have a bit of a think about uh, borrowing. Now, they had a shared culture. Everybody kind of understood it, like farmers, right? You borrow it, you give it back clean, tidy. If it's broke, you fix it. You put some diesel in it, you know, it comes back ready to use, right? That's how we borrow things. But a lot of people in our society don't have any culture of borrowing. They don't have a clue. And this one, once again, you see, I've, I come into this thing pretty idealistic, but I learn that if I'm not careful, all our resources will be gone. Some of you will remember that big van I used to have called the battle truck. So a lady says to me, Jeremy, can we borrow the battle truck? Uh, we need to go to a, a hui at the marae and up at um, where Tabara Nico is. What's the name of that marae? Mm, okay, we need to go to a hui there. I said, oh, how long is it? Two days. She said, said yeah, right here. Okay, here's the van. Give it to you. Uh, it's full of petrol and, you know, clean. After four or five days, my van hasn't come back. This is before cell phones, so I start trying to find out, where's, does anyone know where my van is? Does anyone know? Where's my van? Where's my van? And finally it comes in, oh, yeah, it ran out of petrol, so we, we left it. Where is it? It was way out somewhere in the boonies, I don't know. No petrol, dirty, and uh, 400 k's on the clock. So, <laughs> so my question is, well, you know, do we have to put some wisdom around this? I'm not telling you what to do. In fact, I'm telling you straight up, Jesus said, give to one who asks you. And turn, do not turn away from one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus said that. But what I'm saying is in my considerable experience, if I do that all the time, without wisdom, I'll have nothing left to lend or give to anyone at all. You must decide that one for yourself and answer to God for yourself. So what do we do in our church? We don't lend a lot of money out. If we've got some money, we give it to people. What's the, what's the money for? We ran out of cigarettes. Well, I don't know what it's for. So we give a lot of food away. So instead of somebody saying, can I borrow some money? So no, here's a parcel of food. That hits the spot, doesn't it? We pay power bills here. We pay for petrol for people to get to tonguies. We do that. We're not hard-hearted, but we put a bit of wisdom around it, all right? And I hope, I hope you don't think we're meanies. Somebody comes in there, they go, hey, can you help us? This is Sundays. We often get beggars coming in on Sundays. Can you help us? Why? What's up? Well, we, we're driving to Whangarei, but we're nearly out of petrol. 
and my brother and his baby are in the car too, and, and we won't make it. So, okay, let's come. I'll come and meet them. So I go out there. There's the brother. There's the baby. Let's let's see how much petrol you got. They turn on the thing. The little gauge goes. I see what you mean. You won't make it to Northland with that. So we give him some petrol. You see, I'm just being discerning, or am I being mean? You decide for yourself. Uh, he, you must decide for yourself, but there's a limit to my low-income family's resources. So we lend with care. And Jesus said once, he that is faithful in little is also faithful in much. So if I lent you my bike and you wrecked it, probably I won't lend you my bus, all right? That's how it is, all right? Somebody says, can I borrow your car? Think about how they managed when you lent them your stapler. Serious, hey? That's from Jesus. He was faithful in little. It's faithful all so much. Let's look at the next one. It says this. Actually, actually well, let's all read this together. Here we go. If you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who was famous for actually literally doing that? Yep. Who else? Well, Jesus was, wasn't he? In Luke 23, 24, he says, as he's being tortured to death, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Who, who was another Bible hero who did that? Stephen's last words as he's being bashed to death, his last words before he loses consciousness, consciousness, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. The last thing Stephen ever did was forgive the people who were killing him. He literally prayed for his persecutors. Now, the Barnabas Fund encourage us to help Christians who are suffering persecution all over the world. And one of the things they ask us to do is they say, please pray for us that we will remember to pray for our persecutors. That boy's 10 years old. The only way he can live is pick up rubbish from the side of a sewer. That's not nice. In Africa, Christians are being slaughtered by the hundreds, but they try and follow Jesus by praying for the people who are doing it. And they ask us to pray that they will be strong to keep doing that. This is gritty stuff, isn't it? This is serious stuff. Jesus says he causes it. This is our father. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the un unrighteous. See, God loves good people, so he sends rain to them. And God loves bad people, so he sends them the rain. He loves us, so the sun rises. He loves the evilest person you can think of, so the sun rises for them too. And he says that we're meant to be like that. Now let's look at verse 46 to 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father is perfect. That's a tall order, isn't it? I want to tell you some stories that go around this. Now, Jesus got in trouble for various things, but the most trouble he ever got into was probably who he talked to. He had time for women. Man, I meant to talk to women. He had time for tax collectors. Ooh, they were scumbags. He had time for prostitutes. He talked to them. What? If he knew what she was, he wouldn't even be talking to her. Yes, he would. He did. He even talked to the Samaritan woman. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. She told him that. Why are you talking to me? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Thinks, hope he doesn't know I'm also immoral with five husbands and now I'm having an affair with someone else. But he did, and he still talked to her. Jesus was always in trouble for that. 
And that's how we're going to be too, isn't it? I want to tell you a couple of stories, confrontation stories about people who took this literally. First one was my daughter Hannah. She was the tiniest five-year-old you would ever meet. She was tiny. And she started school. And uh, it looked like a little bag going with two legs, you know. (laughs) This tiny little dot goes into the school. She was a follower of Jesus at five years old. And she... Uh, she she sussed out the society there. The girls say, don't play with Flossie or we won't play with you. Now, Flossie, her mum was a drunk. She Her clothes were ripped and not very clean. Flossie wasn't very clean. Her lunch was awful. You know, you know the kind of kid? And so the other girls, the nice, respectable farm kids go, don't play with her or we won't play with you. What would you do? You're five years old, the smallest kid in the school. What would you do? What would Hannah do? I'll play with who I want. Thanks very much, says Hannah, who's always been like that. And (laughs) Hannah was quite fun to play with. And Hannah and Flossie had quite fun. And after a couple of days, the girls say, can we play with yous? Yes. Now, do you see what's happening there? This is bullying. This is keeping someone out of society. I was the principal of the school. I couldn't fix it. Her teacher, Joan Jones, was a lovely Christian woman. She couldn't fix it. Hannah can fix it. Because wherever you are, there are things that only you can do. Do you believe me? Only you can do some of the things you can do. If you confront, though, boy, this is argumentative stuff. Where's this family value of ours led us? Well, it's been interesting. All of our children went to decile one schools uh, because they were the closest. Um, some Christian parents flee that. Now, Hannah and Jason, uh, they, they've worked in Ghana training teachers, and they currently are leaders in Tarotini, which is a Kuriko, uh, sorry, a a church with a with a kaupapa Māori. Uh, Jude and Aria, a little Pākehā kids, but they go to Pūna, they're in bilingual unit in the school. See, we're, we're moving out by, between those boundaries. What's happened, what, what Hannah was looking at at five years old, how do I get out beyond the in crowd? How do I get out there a bit further? And Hannah's 34 now and she's still doing it, or whatever she is, 36, I guess. Sarah, you know that Sarah's just fallen in love with India, spent lots of time there. Uh, Bex, she goes to a church in Hamilton, but she comes up and helps here every week. Uh, Esther, my youngest daughter, she's spent time in Thailand and Myanmar with refugees there. Her husband has too. And what about me? I'm a middle-class English boy. Look at the rich life I've led. I've been a teacher at Rakamanga for years, taught the Maori Queen's grandchildren. Uh, for years, I was a deacon of Huntley Baptist Church, and at the same time, I was the youth pastor of the Presbyterian Church. And for a few years, I was also, at the same time, the pianist of Liberty Christian Fellowship. Because, you see, that's our family value. We reach out a bit further. I go into the homes of Mormons and JWs, and I pray with them. It breaks their rules, but not mine, because I'm a follower of Jesus. And last week, a Muslim wrote me this text. Kia ora, Jeremy. I'm so pleased to finally meet up with you. So over the moon with my new journey with Cap, aboard to help current situation, leaving with a clear mind, heart and soul, knowing and believing every move I take is in the best interest of my whānau and our needs. Welcome on board our journey, Jeremy. Ngā mihi, a local Muslim lady who's also coming to release group. And loving it. She wrote to me, I I just love release group. What beautiful spirited people was what this Muslim lady wrote. And our church here, well, we've got mainly music. We've got the car boot sale. We had the quiz last night, community work day coming up. The result, all sorts of people and cultures get mixed up with us who might not even meet us if it weren't for the reconciliation taught to us by Jesus. Murray came up with a slogan for it. He called it Bridging the Gap. And today, you know where Murray is? He's over at the Trinity Church with some of our mob doing the music. Bridging the Gap. Could there be a gap between two churches? Oh, yes. 
So we, we're proactive, you see. We do something. Aaron says we're intentional. That's his word. All right, I want to tell you the story of Nathan and the Blues Gang because this was a pretty heavy-duty story of reconciliation. Nathan was in his bedroom there one day. Nathan uh, Lauritsen in, in the house where Joslyn now lives. And he looks out there, and these guys are just about to tag right here, doing some tagging. So he wraps in the glass, and they look around, and he goes, next thing, there's a mob surrounding the house. The Blues Gang has turned out. Nobody tells us not to tag. And they're threatening, and it's ugly. And Nathan and his family move out of the house. Uh, and they're wondering, you know, what do they, can they be safe living in Huntley at all? It was a sad and difficult situation. When we get to this situation, we know there will be a confrontation. If we're followers of Jesus, we're going to come to a confrontation. What are we going to do? Well, C.T. Studd said, first of all, I pray as if everything depended on praying, and then I work as if everything depended on working. So we prayed. We prayed because these, this blue gang, that's the community we want to reach. And now our poor young pastor and his family have to move out of their house. This, this is a bad situation. This is a biggie, all right? I don't know if you thought Hannah's story was a biggie, but this is, this, I think it was. So we pray, we ask God, what are we going to do about this? We want the Lauritsons to be reconciled with the locals. What can we do? We've got no ideas. God gives us ideas. Well, a short time afterwards, maybe a week and a half afterwards, something strange happened. I can't think how. I had something on here which wasn't particularly rushed because on the way I saw that the Mormons were having a car wash. Oh, the old van needs a wash. So I drive the van over and they say, oh, look, we're pretty busy. I said, oh, I'll just leave it with you. I chucked them the keys. I said, bring it to the baptist when you're finished. So, And then I walk across the road. Down that driveway of the Mormon church, where well, I don't think I've ever walked in my life down that particular driveway, across like that, and guess who's having a big hooey just across the road? The Blues Gang, all right? So I go over to the Blues Gang. There's about five of them. I say, hey, how's it? You know, and all the man hugs and slap and high fives and how you're doings and stuff goes on. And we chat about how, what are you up to these days and all this sort of stuff, as you do. And then after a while, I said, did you hear what happened up the road the other day? No, what happened? I said, well, it was pretty ugly, actually, and I told them the story. All of a sudden, everybody's looking at their shoes. And somebody says, oh, I think your old lady just came home now. We better go. I said, no, wait, wait, wait. I want to tell you something. I said, these are nice people. They've come to Huntley to help us. It's important that we get along. Don't scare these people. Um, oh, it wasn't nice. I said, it was the black Sabari. Oh, we've got the blue Sabari. I said, okay. But I just thought you might know the people, all right? Anything you can do to help those people and to help them feel welcome will really be appreciated. The blues, blues gang slopes off. Three or four days later, Nathan looks out his window and here's one of the blues walking right past his bedroom window. Nathan opens the window. Are you looking for a dog? He says, yeah. He says, I did see a dog go by just a short time ago. If I see it again, would you like me to grab it and, and get in contact? Yeah, thanks, says the blue gang guy. Fixed. Who did that? God did that. We did that. See, God couldn't have even done it unless we'd been open. That's reconciliation. Jesus died to reconcile us to God, says Romans 5.10. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Christians are the experts at reconciliation. If you're looking for your ministry, start there. See if you can get people together to get along with each other. In New Zealand right now, there's huge efforts there to try and divide Maori people from other people. It's not an accident. It's deliberate. It's been planned for a long time. I want to read you an article, and this might be a poke for you, but 
This is what Jeremy does, isn't it? Broadsheet, November 1984. Debbie Refiti said this, Looking at these past generations of Maori people, there are people in my mother's generation who believe that Pākehas are our friends, and we should be good to them because they've been good to us. They believe we're hand in hand. We're all New Zealanders, said Debbie Refiti, who was about my age, by the way. Donna Awateri then answered, We have a crisis, and that crisis was created by the generations like the people you talk about, the mothers of this world and the fathers and the grandparents. Many of us broke through that enfeebling, that liberal Christian white trap by a driving cynicism that leads to enlightenment. We cannot become a bicultural society. And secondly, even if it were possible, it's eminently undesirable. Do you see what Donna Awateri is doing in 1984? She's sowing division, trying to, between Māori and Pākehā, but also between generations in Māori society. Traditionally, Māori generations have been very close. You know, the grandparents and the little ones, but she's saying, we have to divide the generations, we have to divide racially as well. Merata Mita said at the same time, Māori sovereignty has outdone the Bible in this country in terms of providing a focal point and a point of reference for our people. That's 1984. Influential people planning how they could divide New Zealand society. And following on from that, in 1986, for the first time, somebody said the Treaty of Waitangi set up a partnership. No one had ever said that before. And from then on, all sorts of things happened to try and separate out Māori people from non-Māori. Hobson's words, as, as the treaty was signed, Governor Hobson said, he iwi tahi tato, as he shook the hand of each person who signed. That's not very good Māori grammar, I know that. But what he means is we're now all one people. That was the plan of the treaty. Now around 2000, around the year 2000, Donna Awateri spoke at Huntley College. She was a, a lovely speaker actually, very different. And the, the words she spoke brought a lot of hope and a lot of excitement. It was lovely. It was a lovely talk. Had she changed her mind? Was it a sincere, a sincere change? Or did she just speak differently to a different audience? I don't know, but she became a very influential New Zealander. And actually, she, of course, was an ACT MP as well. Now, God says at the end there, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you as perfect as God? No, we're not, all right? But I think what... Jesus means is in this matter, in this matter that you're kind to everyone, in this matter that you're open to everyone, I want you to be as good as God, he says. You're not going to be quite like God, but in that, in that. Got that? Now I have two questions. I wanted to, We're nearly near the end now, but there's a, two questions that come up. First one says, people say, well, what about half and half? What if you follow some of the things Jesus says and not others? What's going to happen? You'll do well in some ways, won't you? And not others, right? Well, that's right. So, for instance, if you tell the truth, if you always tell the truth, people will trust what you say, and that's good. Let's imagine that you are, you run your finances very well and very biblically, but you run your marriage very badly. Well, you'll end up divorced and broke. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, let's face the facts. All right. <laughs> that one, yeah, you probably can't do half well with that one. But but in the things that Jesus tells you, I mean, my grandfather didn't even believe in Jesus, but he grew up in a time when people told the truth and they looked after their wives and kids and they did a lot of things and they paid their taxes and, and so people trusted him. He gave his heart to the Lord at the age of 97 and went to be with him. And the other question comes up and it's it's uh, about the, the two houses and it's something that Alyssa and I, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, but we were talking about the houses that stand and fall 
And Alyssa said to me something. She said, when I fall down, I just get up again and I carry on going. I said, then your house is all right. Because I tell you what, the house that stands is the house, the life, where when we fall down, we get back up again and we carry on. All right? If you fall down, it doesn't mean your life's fallen to bits. Because we do fall down, don't we? We do. Does that mean Alyssa's life is going to stand on the rock forever? So far, so good, all right? Of course, we only find out, don't we, when big crises come, when thing, awful things happen. So why did Jesus tell us all that stuff? I think he has two reasons. Number one, he wants us to lift our game, to do better than we've been doing. Number two, I think he wants to remind us that we're not good enough. Because I'll tell you what, when he starts talking about, have you ever got angry with a brother? Have you ever had lustful thoughts? If you, if you were, pri- you know, oof. We kind of go, oh dear, oh dear, we thought we're doing good, Jesus, but snapped again and again, all right? He wants to remind us, in fact, that even if we are as righteous as we can be, and he wants us to be, it's never going to be good enough for God. And we still need a saviour. We still need a redeemer, and that's Jesus Christ himself. I'm going to recap here. Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher who ever lived. He explained to people how to improve their life through practical teachings. I believe that too. The reason we do this stuff, the reason we teach this stuff, and the reason Jesus taught it is so you can have a good life, as we say at Youth Group. And to finish off, I'm going to say what I always say. What is it? Let us know how you got on. If you put this stuff into practice in your life, and you tell people, guess what? I did what Jesus said and this happened. It's not skiting. It's not showing off. It's bringing honour to God and it's encouraging people to do what Jesus said. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that, that what that Wikipedia article said about you is true. You do give us practical teachings so we can have good life. And we thank you for that. We love you being our Redeemer. We're glad you paid for our sins. We've put our trust in you and we want to walk with you as a personal friend. But let us never underestimate the importance of actually following your teachings and doing what you say. Because if we do, we know our lives will become calm and serene and ordered. And we can do what you need us to do, help the people you want us to work with, even if, in fact, it leads to our death and terrible things happening. We will walk strong with you. Please help us, Lord, to be close followers. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church.